Hello and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey and I am the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. And I am recording this from just outside of Philadelphia where we are finally in the yellow phase, which means that we are slowly coming out of our COVID-19 lockdown. It was very strict here in Pennsylvania. Of course, well before the lockdown was lifted, some of us were actually out on the streets protesting the death of George Floyd and police brutality. And as I am sure many of you have either experienced for yourselves or if you're not in the United States, seen on television, there have been incredible protests across this country and actually across the world against police brutality and in um, you know in favor of black lives. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, has really just gone absolutely international, dealing with a deep structural problem of institutionalized racism in this country that goes back to our very founding, obviously. And, you know, I find it really interesting from my perspective as somebody who studies 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe, you know, that one of the most strident critiques of the United States during the Cold War was precisely about how Americans promoted democratic rights abroad while treating their own minority populations at home, both African Americans and Native Americans, so poorly. This was something that the Soviets and its Eastern Bloc allies were constantly harping against the United States, especially in the United Nations. If you haven't read Mary Dudziak's wonderful book, Cold War Civil Rights, which is precisely about the way that civil rights were um, impacted by Cold War politics. I highly recommend this text. It's a very good book to get a sort of sense. There's also another wonderful book about uh, Black American feminists who sort of cut their teeth politically in the Communist Party of the United States by Eric McDuffie called Sojourning for Freedom. It's an excellent book as well. And uh, if you're interested... Obviously, there's the works of people like Angela Davis and uh, Claudia Jones has a wonderful biography about Claudia Jones, who was a Trinidadian Marxist and is actually buried next to Karl Marx in Highgate Cemetery in London. And her position in that cemetery actually informs the title of Carol Boyce Davies' book, Left of Karl Marx, which is a biography of Claudia Jones that I highly recommend to anyone who's interested. And I also recommend Greg Andrews' biography of Tira Edwards, who was an incredible Black activist. She was a member of the Congress of American Women, which was an affiliated organization with the Women's International Democratic Federation here in the United States before it was disbanded by the House Un-American Activities Committee. And there are, you know, many great books out there about African-Americans and racial justice issues in the Communist Party or in the Communist left, both in the United States as well as abroad. I will leave some links to these books in the show notes and you can check them out at your, at your leisure. 
I definitely think these are, there are important historical affinities between uh, struggles for racial justice and struggles for social justice more broadly, economic justice more broadly speaking. And, but I am, you know, just speaking to those of you specifically who are not in the United States, I know that you may be seeing images of what's going on here on television and wondering, really, is it that bad? Is it as bad as the media is portraying it? And, and the answer is definitely yes. I think, you know, Trump's decision to try to mobilize the military to deal with civilian protesters, his deci- decision to disperse a peaceful crowd for a photo op um, using rubber bullets and tear gas was absolutely despicable. There is a big rift actually now in this country, perhaps developing between the military and our commander in chief. It's a very precarious situation. And I think that, you know, what's happening in Seattle with the Capitol Hill autonomous zone is really interesting and inspiring. But I also worry that there are right-wing militias groups that are sort of chomping at the bit to get over there and try to kill some protesters. And and I really fear that our country is sort of spiraling towards, you know, a, a very dangerous internal conflict. And I don't think that our president is the kind of person who's going to try to heal these divisions. If anything, I think he's trying to exacerbate them. And it feels really uncomfortable and, and quite frightening. And, and also, quite revolutionary and and potentially inspiring if you think about the possibilities for social change that this moment might engender. And so in some ways, if we think about Alexandra Kollontai's stories from the 20s as writing in the aftermath of a revolution which caused the end of of an empire, the, the Russian empire, obviously, you know, we could be living here in the United States in the beginning of the 21st century, uh, almost 100 years later, at the, you know, the beginning of perhaps the end of the American empire. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a very difficult couple of years, obviously under the Trump administration and with the pandemic and the economic situation. And now with the protests, I feel like there has never been a moment where people could more, a better moment where people can really band together and try to demand really profound social change in the United States and perhaps around the world. These are really unprecedented times, and the global pandemic has shown us that we need solidarity across borders. We need social responsibility and collective action more than ever before in order to fight some of these challenges that are facing us in the the future. So... I'm not going to, you know, pontificate any longer about any of this. I am going to try to read the second chapter of Alexander Kollontai's Red Love, since that's, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to focus on the work of Kollontai. But I think it's important occasionally to just reflect on what's happening in the world, especially when I feel like I have let this podcast kind of slide into the background of my mind because there's been so much going on. And I've been thinking a lot about fascism. And I've been thinking a lot about how it grows and where it comes from and how we can resist it. And, you know, given that I'm an ethnographer and I work on the lives of ordinary people and trying to understand how ordinary people make sense of the world around them, 
I'm thinking a lot about how ethnography and anthropological research, cultural anthropology perhaps, and, and social history can be a tool for those of us who write and do research in these fields to resist fascism, to resist xenophobia and racism. I think there's a lot that we can do. I think that everybody has to step up and contribute to the movement what they what they can. But there are some really important theoretical and practical uh, intellectual interventions that I think are also are necessary here. I've been reading Carl Poliani's The Essence of Fascism, which is a, an essay that he wrote in the 30s, thinking about the rise of fascism in Europe from where he was in Austria at the time, and really trying to understand what fascism is and where it comes from and why it grows and spreads. I think these are all really relevant questions, especially in the United States right now. I, I definitely feel like there's a role and an importance of being out there, out in the streets, um, and, and, and fighting for our rights and fighting for equality and justice. But I also think that we have a responsibility to, to also fight on an ideological level as well, to really get the narratives out there that there is a different way that we could think about a world of building a world where we undermine the profit motive and we undermine the kind of reification of private property that really ends up in some ways institutionalizing things like racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, ableism, and, you know, the, the kind of, the kind of class politics and the division that are, that, that is sown by our economic elites in order to divide us and in order to make it difficult for us to come together and really deal with the structural problems that capitalism creates in our in our countries and in our economies especially in the 21st century as we're facing these challenges like climate change or automation the extreme income inequality and this persistence of institutionalized racism and growing xenophobia that is bringing these right-wing parties and these right-wing ideals to the fore once again in a very frightening way that is reminiscent of the early 20th century as we slid into the Second World War with the rise of, of fascism after the collapse of the Weimar Republic in Germany. Anyway, I've gone on a little bit too long. I think that for now, I'm just going to try to read, maybe I'll just read the first part of this chapter, and then I'll finish the, the chapter in a, in a subsequent episode. So this is part one of chapter two of Alexandra Kollontai's novella, Red Love. Spring was peeping through the window of Vasilisa's attic, high up under the roof. The warm sun peeped in and the spring sky with its fleecy clouds, white, delicate, melting away. Next door was the roof of what had once been a gentleman's house and was now used as a palace of motherhood. Behind it lay a garden. The buds were beginning to swell. Spring, beloved spring, was late, but it had come at last. Today there was spring in Vasilisa's heart also. It had almost frozen in the winter, always lonely, always alone. Constant worries, struggles, irritations. But today was a holiday, a real holiday, 
there was a letter from her lover, her dearest Volodya. And what a letter. It was a long time since she had gotten a letter like that. Don't torture me, Vanya. My patience is at an end. How often you've promised to come to visit me. But you've always disappointed me. You hurt me, you tireless tomboy of mine. Have you been fighting with everybody again? There were rumors about you even among the comrades here. They say you even got into the papers. But since you came out on top in this business, come to your beloved Volodya now. He can hardly wait for you. You'll see, we'll live like fine people. I have a horse and a cow of my own and an automobile always at my disposal. I have servants so that you will have no work to do in the house but can take a good rest. Spring is at its height here. The apple trees are in full bloom. Vasya, darling tomboy, we've never spent a spring together, but our life must always be like spring. Anyway, I need you very much just now. I'm having trouble with the party committee here. They have it in for me. They can't forget that I was once an anarchist. It started on account of Savelyev, as I wrote you. You'll have to straighten out this business. I'm sick of all these meddlers. They don't let you breathe. It's hard for them to find anything against me. I'm doing my duty well, but all the same, I need you very much now. I kiss your brown eyes, yours forever, Volodya. Vasilisa sat beside the window, watching the white clouds in the sky and thinking. Her eyes were smiling. A good letter. Volodya loved her very much, and how she loved him. She laid the letter on her knees and stroked it as if it were Volodya's head. She didn't see the blue sky, the roof, the clouds. She saw only her handsome Volodya and his mischievously twinkling eyes. Vasilisa loved him, loved him so that it hurt. How had she ever lived through the entire winter without him? She hadn't seen him for seven months, and it seemed to her that she had little thought of him, little longing for him. She had no time to think of her man or to yearn for him. How much trouble and worry she had had during the winter. The child of her heart, the community house, was safe. But she had had to quarrel with stupid, uncomprehending, uncultured people. She had hidden her love and longing for Volodya in the innermost corner of her heart. Her love for him dwelt in her heart, unchangeable. Thinking of him, Vasilisa felt that he was there in her heart, a sweet burden. She actually felt the weight of her love, probably because she had always had to be worried about him. If only nothing happened to him, he did not maintain discipline. The comrades were right. Vasilisa knew it. They accused him of being an anarchist. He didn't like to follow instructions, preferred to do things his own way, but he made up for this with his work. That was why they lived separately, so that they wouldn't disturb each other, for she too was in her work with all her heart and soul. But when Volodya was around, she would be drawn to him, and her work would suffer. First our work, and then our love. Don't you think, Vasya? said Vladimir, and Vasya had agreed. Their ideas were the same, and it was so wonderful that they were not merely man and wife, but comrades as well. Now, again, he summoned her to help him like a comrade, to overcome his difficulties. 
What sort of difficulties? Vasilisa read the letter again. If it was on account of Savelyev, it would be a nasty affair. This Savelyev was a speculator. He was crooked. Why did Volodya have anything to do with him? A manager, such as Volodya was now, had to be as blameless as a saint, had to avoid all rogues. Volodya, however, was a trusting soul. He felt sorry for Savelyev, stood up for him. Still, no one should feel sorry for such men who were stealing the property of the people. Let them suffer the penalty for their misdeeds. But Volodya was kind-hearted, and the others could not understand him. They would have other explanations for his friendship. Volodya had many enemies, for he was hot-headed, unable to control his tongue. If only matters wouldn't develop as they had three years ago. It was easy to lose one's reputation. A charge could be trumped up against anyone. Vasilisa's experience had taught her that. Hadn't people been stirred up against her all winter long? Now it was Volodya's turn. She would have to go to him and help him. She had to stand by him so that his comrades there would be ashamed of themselves. What was there to think about? She would get ready and go. But the house? She didn't care. There was nothing to salvage now. Everything was going to ruin anyhow. Even though Vasilisa had won the fight, the Fedosievs were the actual victors. It was impossible to save anything. Vasilisa sighed. Going to the window, she looked down into the courtyard. It was as if she were bidding the house farewell. She stood there for a long time, gravely, sadly. Then suddenly it struck her. Soon I'll see Volodya again. Her cheeks flushed, her heart beat with joy. My beloved, my dearest, I'm coming, coming to you, my Volodya. So that was the first half of chapter two. I will read the second half in the next episode. I think, of course, here it's important to recognize that Kolontai has a heroine who is somewhat critical of the people that she's been living with. She's been trying to make this communal house and she has faced frustration in trying to create solidarity with the other people living in the house, particularly this couple that has given her a lot of grief, tried to say that she was stealing money from the accounts and ruin her reputation. And she eventually won that battle. She was proven innocent, but the accusations stuck. And she's very worried that a similar thing is going to be happening to Volodya, her lover. And she's very worried that in this particular moment of the NEP, the new economic policy, which is returning the Soviet Union to some form of market economy in the aftermath of the Civil War, that people are turning on each other and trying to ruin each other's reputations in order to come out on top uh, with sort of economic opportunities that were not previously available during the period of war communism. Obviously, Kolontai herself is very critical of the NEP. And so this story is, is in many ways a kind of critique of the kind of machinations that occurred in the Soviet Union during, during this period of time, and also of the, of the ways in which ordinary people turn on each other. And again, how difficult it is to build solidarity among different groups of people in society. 
So that's it for this episode. I'm sorry I didn't read the entire chapter. Uh, my introduction was longer than I expected, but as I said, I've got a lot on my mind these days with everything that's happening in the United States, and, and I feel especially beholden to the people that listen to this podcast. I know there are many of you in Latin America and in Europe who are probably curious about what's happening in the United States, and so I wanted to reflect a little bit about that and, and give you some books to read, which again, as I said, I've put in links in the, the show notes if you're interested in reading some of the books I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. I hope you are all healthy and safe. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, keep up the good fight. We need it now more than ever before. Take care.